Good morning to everybody. It is uh, good to be able to get back together again. I'd like to make the uh, observation at the outset of this particular session that we are still in the PowerPoint entitled The First Missionary Journey and that we are beginning to get into the meat of the life of the story of Paul. Uh, so you are well into this particular course. We were in the city of Lystra. Uh, which is in Cilicia and it, uh, or Asia Minor, and uh, here the Apostle Paul and Barnabas have both been accused of, uh, at least not accused, but mistaken for gods, Hermes and Zeus. Uh, it's interesting how uh, Paul encounters uh, this pagan challenge, because previously the challenges he'd received would have been largely from Jewish people. But now, of course, these individuals, first of all, uh, insist on worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And then later on, we read that uh, he was stoned. If you would, uh, read with me Acts 14, beginning with verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, please note that there are indeed disciples, people who had responded to the gospel and, and had become Christians. When they gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. Uh, seems to me that that would be very counterintuitive. Uh, had I just been stoned, my first instinct would not be to go back into the city. And the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Uh, when they had reached the, preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And there would be a good place to stop for just a few moments. Uh, well, uh, crowds are fickle. People are fickle sometimes. They go from one point where they're ready to worship Paul and Barnabas to another point where they uh, are stoning Paul. Uh, the language is interesting. The practice in Jewish society, uh, and according to the law of Moses, was that they were to take the person who was accused of a heinous crime and drag him out of the city and stone him there. Uh, the fact that Paul was stoned inside the city, uh, many scholars suspect, means that this was uh, one of those moments where, where anger was just turned up bright and suddenly they stoned him in that fit of anger and then they dragged him out um, in that order rather than the other order around. Uh, it should be said that uh, when Paul did his mission work, he faced all kinds of opposition. Here was a man whose conviction ran deep. Here was a man who was very courageous, physically and emotionally and spiritually courageous. Uh, I am not sure what uh, our reaction might be today, uh, even if we were shouted down uh, in our attempts to serve God or to worship him, uh, let alone be stoned or beaten or imprisoned and the like. Uh, Paul was an individual that was hard to uh, slow down when he was fight once he was convinced that an action was the right thing to do. I want you to notice, though, when we read the, the, the last verse in verse 22 of Acts 14, that Paul retraces his steps. Now, even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians will designate himself as a church planter. You remember where in 1 Corinthians 3 he says, I planted, Apollos watered but God gave the increase. It appears that Paul is characterizing himself as a church planter. And there are other places where he'll also uh, suggest that his favorite method of working uh, in ministry is to be the pioneer, to be the first person there, to come into a, a city or a region and be the first gospel preacher and establish a church. He's suggesting then that Apollos would be the one who would come by and do the equally necessary work of watering and tending and nurturing the young growth. But that doesn't mean that Paul is not interested in that second phase, because uh, what we're noting here is that Paul retraces his step. 
uh, steps going from Derby to Lystra to Iconium back to Antioch and then if you recall the map that we gave a few minutes ago uh, they sailed then s south from uh, uh, Antioch uh, and across back to uh, Antioch of Syria and so the Apostle Paul I suppose is going through each of these towns and uh, strengthening, strengthening the churches giving them additional teaching and guidance in fact um, if you would we're reading from Acts 14 23 at this point and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed uh, I would like to note that uh, in very much the same way as in Acts 13 where uh, they pray and fast when they send Barnabas and Saul off on this missionary journey so in each of these cities and each of these congregations when uh, elders are appointed the first thing that they, they do is they pray and fast we don't know exactly what uh, this ceremony entailed uh, except for the very words there you don't eat and you uh, pray or lay hands on them or something like that but one assumes a, a fairly solemn uh, important ceremony where they uh, charge the elders or um, uh, acknowledge the elders or introduce them uh, in, in introduce the elders to the congregation and then pray for guidance and strength and so on now it's interesting also though to note the word when they had appointed elders the Greek word for appointed is I'm sorry uh, this is um, drawn from the Greek word which is hand and taino, which is to stretch. You can picture somebody stretching his hand out. Uh, this is a term for a vote. Uh, it appears that what happened is that Paul and Barnabas would uh, talk to the congregation about what an elder was, uh, what his qualifications might be, uh, what kind of work he might do, and then what they would do is allow the congregation itself then to be able to vote, to raise their hands or stretch, extend their hands, uh, to vote on uh, what kind of men uh, that they would have to be their own elders. Uh, you see then there would be guidance from Saul and from Paul and Barnabas, but also there would be a certain degree of uh, freedom on the part of the local people to recognize their own leaders. This is a process that resembles somewhat the selection of the seven uh, deacons in Acts 6 and verse 3. Uh, this was of course before Paul is a Christian but you recall that there was a conflict between Grecian and uh, Hellenic, uh, Greek Grecian and Jewish uh, widows and the way that they handled it was they chose seven men uh, of whom Stephen and Philip uh, are a part and these individuals then would uh, be the ones who would ensure a fair distribution of, of help to all of the widows in the city of Jerusalem but what they do is the apostles set out the parameters they say here is what a, what this person would look like this is uh, uh, what we'd like him to be like and then the congregation themselves turned in the names of the individuals that would serve in that manner so this does seem to follow a kind of pattern or procedure now what happens in Acts 14 verses 26 through 28 is that Paul and Barnabas returned to the city of Antioch, I mean in this case Antioch of Syria, uh, from which they had left. And they report what they had done. Please note the wording in verse 26. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace 
of God for the work that they, that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Please note several of the uh, characteristics of what happened. When they arrived, they gathered the whole church together and declared all that God had done with them. Note that the apostles did not take uh, heavy credit for themselves, their talent, their courage, their uh, enterprise. No, it was God that had worked through them. Instead, there is no place for pride and arrogance in Christian ministry. But the second element is to note that uh, it is a biblical idea, this idea of having missionaries return and, and report to the congregation the work that they had done. Uh, I don't know how you young people feel like a missionary report. It may be that you feel like you have suffered through some rather long and boring reports about somebody who speaks about people you don't know uh, or uh, about places that you're not aware of. Uh, it shouldn't be that way, of course, and, and my suspicion that it usually isn't. Uh, you have a man return from the mission field. Uh, this is his life. This is his heart and soul. This is what he's lived and breathed for five years or ten years or twenty years. And, and so here's a man speaking from the bottom of his heart about his life's work. Uh, and it seems to me that it's a worthwhile thing to do. It has great effect on the congregation. The congregation's reminded that they're backing something worthwhile, something significant. Uh, young people see a missionary return and, and perhaps the thought is formed in their own mind, even children. Uh, they may say to themselves, I wonder if I could go and do mission work in New Zealand or in, in Indonesia or in Pakistan or wherever. Uh, maybe he's thinking to himself, I'd like perhaps to try that, even if it's a temporary thing. What if a young man were to go out to a country for a year? Or for four years or for eight years and then come back to the States. Uh, but still, it seems to me that, that it's an important thing to make this connection between mission field, missionary, and the supporting congregation, Antioch being the first great supporting congregation of a mission work. Uh, notice in verse 28 that there is some time, uh, Luke says, remain no little time with the disciples. I don't know what might have transpired. Uh, maybe uh, Paul and Barnabas are resting from their endeavors. Maybe they are recharging their batteries. Uh, uh, you know, they had been out there on the front lines uh, uh, and in the warfare for Christ. And perhaps it was time to sit back and, and enjoy a little bit of time uh, relaxing at this point. Now, there is an issue that arises uh, uh, going along with this, and, and, and that is that uh, when the apostles returned, when Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, uh, there had been a great missionary outreach because of their work, and there had been a great number of people who had been baptized, Greek people, non-Jewish people, Gentiles. And so this raised the question of exactly how Gentile people would become Christians. Please note, if you would, Acts 15, beginning with verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, this is what they say, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about the question. So, being sent on the way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Please note the similarity of 
the wording, all that God had done through them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and, in, uh, uh, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so there begins the discussion. Uh, what lies behind this particular issue is, in fact, more important than perhaps uh, we realize at first. Uh, Paul and Barnabas had converted a lot of Gentiles. Ethnically and linguistically and culturally, they are going to be quite different from Jewish Christians. And so the question is, do Gentiles have to become Jewish in order to become Christians? That's the issue of circumcision, you see. And you might notice that there is even a demand that they keep the law, the law of Moses. Uh, is that necessary uh, for a person to become, uh, be considered a, a Christian? Does he first have to become culturally a Jew and then to become a Christian. Uh, that may not seem like a big issue to us today, uh, but consider this. Uh, are there aspects of, let's say, Western culture, by that I mean European and American culture, are there aspects of Western culture that when we go to a mission field that is not European and not American, we try to bring over from our culture to theirs? Uh, I don't know if this is a thought that has crossed your mind before, but I suspect that it's an important one to think about. Uh, so for instance, if we were to go to Zimbabwe, and if we were to go out to a village area where, let's say, there's a, a congregation that's been established of 50 or 100 people, uh, here they are living uh, uh, in, in a group of huts, thatched huts with uh, mud or uh, 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 adobe walls and uh, a clearing in the middle. Uh, here they are in an agricultural economy. They, uh, they eat what they grow. Uh, they grow some corn. They may grow some vegetables. They may raise some cattle and chickens and the like. They're not in a cash economy. Uh, are there some aspects of our Western culture that we mistakenly bring to these African people and insist that they perhaps live according to those particular ways? Uh, now, uh, if I can make some dis distinctions, if we were to say you need to be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, I would argue that that's biblical, not cultural, that the Bible actually says that baptism is something that uh, a believer needs to do in order to become a Christian. Uh, but what if we go there and insist that these African people wear a tie and a coat to Sunday morning worship? Uh, now, you must understand, they don't have a church building. They're probably worshiping out of doors on a rock under a tree within sight of those mud huts and those cornfields or maize fields, they call it. Uh, and, and can you imagine uh, talking to people who make no money and who therefore could not afford to buy many clothes, many of whom do not own a pair of shoes, uh, many of whom have only one uh, change of clothes, uh, and insisting that they wear a collar and a tie and a coat. Uh, it would be silly, and, and I suspect most of you would not insist they do that, but that would be an example of taking our culture, where we wear perhaps a tie and a coat to worship in our land and in our way of thinking, but that we probably should not insist on African brethren to do. Uh, that would be an example of saying you must become American before you can become a Christian. Uh, there may be some aspects that we would have to wrestle with as we did this. And this is uh, basically the issue that Paul and Barnabas are facing as they come back to Jewish areas uh, and, and uh, come across uh, what the book of Luke calls the book of Acts, that is, calls a sharp dis dispute, dis dispute and debate between Paul, Barnabas, and the Jewish uh, people. Uh, now, Gentiles had already been allowed into the church. You remember in Acts 10 and 11 uh, that it was Peter who was the one who initially uh, converted a Gentile believer. You might also recall that God had to push him into doing so. You remember the uh, uh, sheet that was let down in his vision uh, where all kinds of animals, um, uh, unclean 
and clean animals. Um, and the voice says, rise up, Peter, kill and eat. And you look at that scenario, and, and um, Peter even is saying to himself, I wonder if God is talking about my diet, or if he's talking about something of, of more importance. And he clearly concluded that God was saying, yes, you can accept Gentiles into uh, the church. And that's where he preached to uh, Cornelius and his friends, and he made that great declaration, I have now come to realize that God is no respecter of persons, but accepts all people from all nations uh, who have faith in him. It was a great thing that Peter said, but it seems as if it would be one thing to have just a few Gentiles in your church, and another thing to be overwhelmed by the number of Gentiles in your church, where suddenly you, the Jew, are in the minority. I am reminded of an incident that occurred in California. I was preaching in the congregation in Glendale, California, and what we had done is that we had brought in a Korean preacher. There was a fairly good Korean community in Los Angeles, and Jay Cho, a good man, a hard worker, a, a good friend of mine, began a Korean congregation. Well, now, the Korean congregation was cute and interesting when there were 10 or 12 or 15 of them. But Jay was a successful worker and a successful evangelist. And, and you see, it was one thing to have 15 or 20 Koreans and 200 Americans. It was another thing to have 140, 150, 160 Koreans as Jay's church began to grow. Then you began to hear the mutterings amongst some American uh, members. Are they going to take over this church? Are they going, they going to push us out when they become bigger than us? Uh, all of those calls things, of course, were silly, uh, but it seems to me that that's kind of the feelings that we're referring to when we think about how the church would accept Gentiles and the conditions under which they would do that. Now, I think this is probably a good time to mention a, a source outside of the book of Acts. Um, this is an incident that probably took place at or around the same time. Um, it's found in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Uh, here, uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about several uh, biographical things. But here he says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas, of course, would be Peter, I opposed him to the face because he stood condemned. All right, uh, this is an extraordinary moment. Here is Peter, one of the leaders in the early church, one of the dominant figures in the early church. And Paul opposes him to the face. You can picture uh, two leaders in the church, two powerful men in the church, face to face, uh, discussing, shall we say, heatedly, some particular issue. Uh, he says, for now, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when he came, he drew back and separated himself from the circumcision party. Okay, what had happened? Well, Peter was up in Antioch, uh, along with Paul, and Peter was quite happy, it seems, to uh, uh, be fellowshipping with and eating with Gentile Christians. He was happy to be with them and talking with them and, and so on. But then it appears that a rather conservative, uh, or perhaps even ultra-conservative group from Jerusalem came up. Uh, Paul suggests that these were uh, men who came from James and, and they came up and suddenly Peter withdrew from the, um, uh, from, from the Gentiles and, and fearing, he says, the circumcision party, verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So apparently Peter was not alone in this. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas too, uh, you know, one of the missionary team, uh, was also afraid to eat with Gentiles while these austere and serious uh, uh, right-wing kind of um, men from Jerusalem were watching. Verse 14, but when I saw 
that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before, all of, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That's precisely the issue that we're dealing with in Acts chapter 15. We don't know exactly the historical sequence of all of this, but I'd like to throw in uh, three different incidents that fit in or around this particular era. Uh, the first incident would be the one we just read in Acts, uh, where Paul and Barnabas return from their first missionary journey and the early church is then beginning to try to decide upon what basis Gentiles should be considered Christians. That was the first thing and their trip down to uh, Jerusalem and a conference that would take place there to try and decide this issue. The second is the incident that we just read, the one where Peter is in Antioch and where when uh, some uh, Jewish people come up, uh, some perhaps very right-wing ones came up, uh, Peter and Barnabas and some other Jewish people, other Jewish Christians backed off our fellowship with the Gentiles. We, and then the third incident I'd like to mention is the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians deals with almost exactly the same issue. Um, it's written to the churches in Galatia, and I, I suspect, and most scholars suspect, that all three of these incidents occur more or less at the same time. It's the same issue. Uh, it's the same problem. And, and it makes sense that all three of these happened, but we just don't know what the sequence of events was. Uh, could it be possible that Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch? They report the great growth of the church in Asia Minor and in the island of Cyprus. Uh, then the opposition begins to get stronger and stronger, and then perhaps there's this incident where Peter is up in Antioch and, and, and where he is uh, forced by some uh, peer pressure, perhaps, uh, not to eat with them. And then perhaps later on in Acts 15, there is a conference in Jerusalem where it's discussed and some decisions are made as to how this would go. Perhaps this is what we have. I'd like to mention, and it's here in the uh, PowerPoints in front of you, that F.C. Bauer, you can see that he lived in 1792 to 1860. He's a German theologian. And what he did was he developed a very elaborate theory, uh, reading Acts and the epistles to Peter and Galatians and some other writings of Paul, he developed this elaborate theory where, uh, in fact, what we were looking at was a deep divide between the, in the early church between uh, those who supported Peter and those who supported Paul. And what Bauer does, and a lot of other scholars followed after him trying to uh, uh, establish and uh, uh, define this, was that, uh, you see, there would be those who said uh, uh, people are saved by grace and uh, uh, Gentiles should become Christians purely and simply because God forgave them and the other side that said no they must become Jewish the champion of the one would be Paul and the champion of the other would be Peter uh, and you see uh, the, the moment of the great conflict the great divide began in Antioch when Peter and Paul faced each other down uh, well uh, the uh, Theologian F.C. Bauer, I think, was gifted with a great deal of imagination. Um, yes, there certainly was a conflict, but I think a better reading of that particular passage in Galatians uh, shows us something much more simple than a deep divide in the first century church. Uh, I think what we see in Galatians is, is Peter being very human. We know he was. Uh, he had made other mistakes before. He was famously the one who denied Jesus three times. He did and said other things. And, and this was a moment of weakness on Peter's part. Uh, here he was, um, perhaps frozen, uh, standing between Gentiles 
Gentile Christians and Jewish ones, not knowing what to do. And momentarily he came over on the side of the Jewish leaders as opposed to uh, accepting and bringing in the entire group, Gentile and Jew together. Uh, it should be said, and I say this with tongue-in-cheek, that peer pressure is not something that affects Paul much. Paul doesn't mind being the only one. Uh, who stands up for a principle. Uh, Paul is Paul, you see. And so he's the one who speaks to Peter and says, uh, Peter, you're wrong. Uh, you messed up today. And, and I suspect, though the text doesn't say, that Peter had to ruefully admit, yes, Paul, you're right. I messed up. I knew better. And I think it's fair to say that frequently when you and I make mistakes, uh, that we know better than we do. Uh, can I uh, add once again that in our day and, uh, day, day and age, uh, in the 21st century, we do not have this question of uh, ethnic and racial uh, uh, problems whipped yet, do we? Um, I remember an incident that happened years ago when a lady from Texas came to Zimbabwe and she'd been there oh for about a week and a half and, and there was some discussion about racial matters in, in Zimbabwe and it should be acknowledged that uh, people of British descent in southern Africa, the colonial power, uh, that they had done some things that they shouldn't have done and that there were even in the church uh, some incidents and some words that were said that were very hurtful from, from white people or people of an English background towards black people in Zimbabwe. Now, yes, that had happened. And she was giving me a hard time about that and saying, how could Christians do these things and say these things? And she was right. It was wrong uh, for, uh, for them to do that. Uh, but I looked at her and I said, well, um, how about black people in Texas? Uh, uh, is there ever a racial uh, problem between the two races there? And she looked at me and said, no, we have no problem with black people in Texas. Now, I'm not sure I believe her entirely. She may not have even been honest with herself, but then I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder. And so I said, okay, what about Hispanic people in Texas? How do you feel about them? And I'll never forget, she paused and looked at me very seriously, and then she said, oh, you don't understand. That's different. And I remember thinking to myself, well, you see, anywhere in the world, we'll find somebody that we will be prejudiced towards. Uh, and, and she just wasn't aware of the fact that her prejudice was indeed just that. It was prejudice. But uh, we're talking about an old, old problem. In the first century, Gentile and Jew. Uh, in our 21st century, uh, wherever we are in the world, there will be challenges between French and German, perhaps, or between Aborigines and white Australians, or Maoris and white New Zealanders, or, or, or in Fiji, it would be people of Indian descent and, and native Fijians, or in America, it might be uh, white and Hispanic, or native and Amer American, or, or whatever it might be. And my suspicion is that that's one of the things churches still struggle with. And I'm not suggesting anybody's terrible and bad, but I am saying that being aware of this is certainly one of the things we need to do. So we ask the question of uh, culture and gospel. The very success of the first missionary journey forced upon the early church this discussion. Uh, it was one thing to admit Gentiles in small numbers in the church, but it's another thing to be overwhelmed by sheer numbers and find out that what you thought of as a Jewish Christian community was actually now a Gentile Christian community. Now in the book of Acts chapter 15, there is a conference to which we will not go into deep detail uh, that, that tries to deal with this problem. There's some things that need to be said about the Jerusalem conference and, and one of them is this. Uh, this conference in Jerusalem differs very markedly from uh, later efforts by churches to determine church doctrine. I'm thinking of uh, the Council of Nicaea uh, that was 300 and something years after Christ or the Council of Chalcedon uh, 
which would be when, when church leaders came together and tried to hammer out church doctrine on various issues. In Acts 15, we actually have present that day apostles, inspired by God men, who could uh, deliver, could render uh, something that was actually God's own word, uh, inspiring these men to speak, which would not be the case if, for instance, today uh, a large number of church leaders got together, uh, for perhaps even in churches of Christ, and met in some place and decided what uh, the Church of Christ doctrine on this or that would be. Uh, this would be a very different thing because we would just be flawed human beings uh, trying to do something that we probably shouldn't be doing. Please note at the end of the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15 and verse 28. This is part of a letter that was sent back to Gentile Christians instructing them on various things to do. We won't notice in detail what they do instruct them to do, but I do want us to notice the uh, beginning of this letter. Acts 15 and verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from uh, 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 what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. Now, I look at this, and I'd like to make the observation that the, the, the letter that resulted from the Jerusalem conference was, in fact, they believe, uh, something that the Holy Spirit had been involved in. The Holy Spirit had guided them to this particular uh, solution. That is not something that we would claim today if we were to sit down and, and study or discuss or debate an issue and try to arrive at a conclusion. We might say we believe the Bible teaches. We might say after our study we think that this is what the Bible is telling us, but I think it would be arrogant and wrong of us to say the Holy Spirit guided us into this new doctrine or this new understanding of what is um, being said. So at any rate, we end the subject of the first missionary journey uh, at that particular juncture we still have enough time I suspect to start the second missionary journey uh, so if you uh, want to do that you can turn or find on blackboard that uh, uh, second missionary journey PowerPoint series because that's the one we shall turn to next the second missionary journey had uh, perhaps you could suggest a trouble beginning we read of this beginning in Acts 15, verses 36 to 41. Uh, it, it's a fascinating account because it seems to me that we see in here two very interesting and distinct personalities. One, of course, would be the major character that we're studying, the Apostle Paul. Read with me this uh, passage. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city, where we proclaim the word of God and see how they are. Please note in verse 36 that the stated purpose of the second missionary journey was to go back to the original churches that they had established and to, to strengthen them. Uh, my suspicion is that what would have happened is that they would have gone as they did the first time, first to Cyprus and established and grounded and strengthened those churches and then go back into Cilicia and Asia Minor and establish and ground those churches just as they had done in the first missionary journey. Of course that's not the way it happened because the missionary party split up as we shall see. 
verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. Please recall that John Mark was the one who had left uh, Paul and Barnabas in the first missionary journey. When they got back to the mainland, when they were about to enter the city of Antioch of Pisidia, uh, that's when John Mark left. Uh, we had noted back then that no reason was given for John Mark's departure. We don't know if he received an email uh, from his mom saying, we're having troubles at home, please come back. Uh, maybe a girlfriend Facebooked him and said, I'm missing you. Uh, we don't know why John Mark went back, but we can gain some clues from this very passage. And the other thing that I'm fascinated with as I read these verses is, is to see the two personalities, uh, that of Paul and that of Barnabas. Uh, both of them were good men. Both of them were spiritual men. Both of them were admirable men. But it should also be said that both of them uh, had strong personalities. Verse 36, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Uh, I, uh, I suspect that Luke here is quoting exact words. At some point, these are Paul's words. Can you imagine Paul saying, I think it's best not to take one who had withdrawn from us in Pamphylia and had not gone on with us in the work. Clearly, Paul blames John Mark for lacking discipline or uh, lacking commitment or something like that. Uh, I, I can very easily imagine Paul, whose uh, lifestyle, after all, was characterized by uh, sheer self-discipline and, and uh, sheer strength of will. Uh, he's not the kind of person who's discouraged or turned back from his endeavor. He's the kind of person also, I suspect, who has little trouble understanding someone who might uh, succumb to this kind of thing. Uh, what? Paul quit because he's discouraged? No, that would never happen. Now, you also notice the other personality, that of Barnabas. We have already noted that Barnabas is uh, an encourager. And I can picture Barnabas saying, well, you should give John Mark a chance. Uh, he's grown. He's learned from his mistakes. How is John Mark going to grow unless we do give him these opportunities? So note verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Now, what I'd like to note at this juncture is this. Barnabas has been a man who's been in support of Paul for a long time. Uh, several times it was the intervention of Barnabas, uh, the, the encouragement of Barnabas, the uh, uh, humility of Barnabas uh, that aided Paul to become the man he should be. Paul should have had a great deal of gratitude for Barnabas and probably did. But it also seems to me that uh, Paul did not see that Barnabas would be doing the same thing with other men, uh, showing the patience and the support and, and putting them to the forefront and, and developing their skills as well. And what's ironic about that is that Paul doesn't see the same process in other people. Uh, notice, though, that Barnabas, though he is humble and though he is an encourager frequently, was prepared at this point to stand up for his conviction. Uh, the Bible says there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Uh, Barnabas insisted strongly enough uh, to where it became apparent that at this point, at any rate, they could not work together. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that Paul and Barnabas never worked together again. Uh, this was not a doctrinal disagreement. This was not a disagreement that had anything to do with a, a weakness in either of the men's character or, or dishonesty or something like that. It was purely and simply a personality conflict. Uh, good men can disagree and still be good men. Uh, they can stand on principle, perhaps, and perhaps not be able to see clearly the other person's uh, point of view. Notice then, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. That was probably the original plan. Go back to Cyprus and then go back to Asia Minor. But Paul chose Silas and, having de uh, had, and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria 
and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Uh, what you just read there is the poll now for the third time goes back into the area around southern Asia Minor and into Galatia. This is the second time then that he's come back strengthening churches grounding them. Uh, so uh, I emphasize what I said uh, a few minutes ago, and that is that although Paul is most famous for planting churches, uh, that does not mean that Paul uh, was not interested in developing leadership and strengthening congregations and the like. Uh, what we come to, though, in the account of Acts is a fascinating sequence where Paul is guided or perhaps not guided by the Holy Spirit in the places he was to go. Notice, if you would, Acts 16, beginning with verse 6. Acts 16, verse 6. And when they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Uh, here is the famous Macedonian call. You might recall even a song that we sing, Send the Light. And one of the verses says, We have heard the Macedonian call today. Send the light. Send the light. Certainly a song drawn directly from this particular passage. But I'd like to go back to the verses just prior to the Macedonian call. Uh, we're greatly impressed by the fact that this man from Macedonia Macedonia in a vision would appear to Paul and make that great appeal. But what happened before that? Please note in verse 6 and following, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Twice the Holy Spirit, in some way, it's not explained how, kept the missionary party from going into a particular region. Basically what they're doing is that at first they tried to go farther north into a new region that Paul and Barnabas had not gone into and it says the Spirit stopped them. And then they tried to go south back towards the coast uh, and again uh, uh, there uh, it says that the Lord stopped them. The Holy Spirit stopped them. We don't know, do not know what it was. Uh, maybe, maybe there was a flood uh, in a river that um, they couldn't cross. Maybe there was a Roman official that wouldn't allow them to go into a particular area. Maybe there was a, a military problem or a, a bandits that were on the loose or something like that. Maybe somebody got sick uh, before they went into that area and then they said, well, we can't go there. But whatever the case was, what they actually did was they continued to move in an easterly or maybe in a slightly north, I'm sorry, a westerly or even a slightly northwesterly area. Uh, what they do is they come all the way to the coast. Troas, ancient Troy. You remember uh, the Trojan horse and you remember uh, some of the Greek mythology surrounding the Helen of Troy and so on. This is the same city. Uh, it's right on the coast of the Aegean Sea. Uh, it's looking across uh, the Aegean towards Greece, Greece proper. And so uh, this is a very important city and a very historic city, but they get there and it's almost as if Paul and Silas are saying, okay, Lord, where to now? We couldn't go north, we couldn't go south, and now we've come to the ocean. So what do you want us to do? What I'm fascinated with as I read this passage is that at this particular juncture, Paul is uh, limited, reduced to the same level that we are. Uh, while it is certainly true that when Paul writes, 
his epistles, he's inspired by God. And while it is certainly true that there were times when God comes to Paul in a vision and tells him to do this or that or continue to doing something, it seems that this was a period in Paul's life where, like us, like you and me, he had to guess what the Lord's will was. He tries to go north into Mysia. He tries to go south into Bithynia. Uh, he, he's struggling. He's finding shut doors. Uh, he, he's moving on in the only direction that appears to be open, but he doesn't know what the Lord has in mind. Uh, isn't that a lot like you and I? Uh, I say to myself, well, where would my next ministry be? Uh, where will I be most effective? Where does God want me to be? Uh, maybe a young person is asking, what, what should be my major at school? Uh, what would be my uh, uh, life's work? Uh, should I uh, have a minor emissions? Um, should I uh, go into uh, accounting and become a business person? Uh, what should I do? Or maybe you're even suggesting to yourself, this young lady that I'm dating, is she the one? Um, or is this just one of those moments where uh, I'll enjoy a relationship and at some point it'll end. Uh, what I'm trying to suggest is that, that you and I, in the situation we're in, don't necessarily go down the highway and look up and see a billboard that says, Stan Mitchell, go to New York City and do ministry there. Uh, God doesn't work that way with me. Uh, I don't get clear uh, uh, signals from God in that manner. Uh, I, I would probably be a little suspicious of somebody who claimed that he did in our day and age. Now, Paul sometimes in his life would receive direct direction like that, but it appears in this case that Paul is simply blundering and trying to pray and think it through and, and um, see what the Lord seems to have in mind. Now, that's what we have in that particular section. Finally, of course, we come to the Macedonian Paul, and I love the way that Luke expresses this. I, I wonder if Luke isn't even doing this with a little uh, twinkle in his eye, but we read in Acts chapter 16 and verse 10 something very interesting. He says, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I like that phrase, concluding that God had called. I, I suppose they woke up and they discussed the vision and uh, they, they've had the pros and cons and, and finally they said, you know what, we conclude that God wants us to go across into Macedonia. Macedonia is a province in Greece. What we're doing is taking a fateful step from Asia into Europe. Um, we don't know if the church had ever been in Europe before. Uh, this, uh, the nation of Greece, certainly would be the first time that Paul has gone into Europe with the gospel. So uh, this is a, a particularly important moment for the early church. Would you notice down on the PowerPoint that I've got a map that shows Turkey in the eastern part of the map and on the western part of the map there's Greece. I've entitled this from Troas to Philippi. You can see the city of uh, uh, Troas um, right there on, on the Turkish border. You can see the Aegean Sea, uh, which is that which separates Turkey from Greece. And then you can look across the uh, uh, ocean and you can see uh, uh, Thessos and Thessaloniki and other cities. And, and what you've got then is um, the ocean over which Paul and Silas would travel to get to Philippi. Now you look at the next map, and this is a map that shows relief, um, mountains and the like, and you can see uh, it says Philippes. Uh, that's, of course, the modern uh, name and spelling of the town. It's um, ancient Philippi. Philippi was the first place where the gospel was preached in Europe, uh, at least as far as we're aware. Uh, it was located on the Gang. 
Gangaitis River, uh, just outside the city. I would suppose that most of the great cities of the world in that day were dependent on a river nearby. Uh, they would have to have sufficient water supply somewhere uh, to ensure that the people of the city could grow crops and, and drink and bathe and so on. Uh, the next PowerPoint slide will have uh, an image uh, above the city of Philippi on a hill looking down over it. You can see that uh, Greece is indeed a beautiful land, and you can see that the city of Philippi uh, is uh, much diminished, of course. Uh, you have the Ignatian Way. That's the next uh, photo. Uh, this would be the main highway that extends from Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, of course. It stretched all the way across from Greece into Asia Minor and on to uh, Syria. Uh, Antioch of Syria and then even beyond. So uh, this was a, a very significant highway and it rolled right through Philippi. You can see the uh, embankment holding uh, the wall, holding the soil back on the right hand side of the image. You can see the uh, tile, uh, the stone tile that the uh, uh, chariots and horses and foot people uh, even would walk on in the, the Ignatian way. Going through the city of Philippi, that was probably the reason that it became a, a fairly large and notable city. Uh, in Acts 16, uh, 11 through 15, we note a few things in Philippi that are, are perhaps different from some of the cities that we've already noted. Acts 16, beginning with verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we read, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come there, uh, come together. Uh, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Uh, there's a couple of things that are important about this passage uh, that we should note. Uh, one of them is that as they come into the city of Philippi, uh, there is apparently an insufficiently uh, an insufficient number of Jewish people to comprise a synagogue. We had noted earlier that you needed ten wage earners in a city to do so. Well, apparently there were not even that uh, that many men, and so uh, what you had instead was a place of prayer just outside the city, uh, by the riverside, and it looks as if it was just women uh, who were there, and one of them was Lydia, the seller of purple. Uh, amongst the things that we note when we uh, hear that she was a seller of purple is that she was probably a person who had a very wealthy clientele. You might recall that purple would usually be the uh, uh, one of the uh, signs of a wealthy person or even a royal person. And so uh, in that particular image, uh, Lydia selling to wealthy people, and she had enough of a household uh, to invite the missionary party in and to uh, be hospitable to them after her conversion. So uh, uh, there we have that. Notice also that Philippi is a Roman colony. Uh, a Roman colony, a lot like the uh, city of Tarsus from which Paul had come. Uh, it's fascinating that uh, Paul will even say in the epistle to the Philippians, uh, if you would turn to uh, that particular book, uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. 
where the Apostle Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know uh, how significant it is, but it might be significant that Paul, writing to the Philippians, who were of a Roman colony and were citizens of Rome, that he would perhaps remind them that although there were great privileges to being a Roman citizen, that there was in fact a citizenship much more important and much higher than the Roman uh, citizenship that they enjoyed. And so here he says, we're citizens of of a heavenly kingdom. Uh, I think the obvious application to us would be a reminder that, that human nations, human empires, human governments rise and fall, uh, but God's kingdom is forever. Uh, we no longer have a Greek empire or a Roman empire in our day and age. Uh, we no longer have uh, a British empire, uh, nor do we even have a Russian or a Soviet Union empire. Uh, the United States at this point is a, a sole superpower, but perhaps many of you could even surmise that there is a, a nation that may one day, perhaps even one day soon, overtake us, and that would be the nation of China. My point is uh, that if you trust in human uh, nations and human governments, if you take overdue pride in the country you come from, perhaps you'll forget that your primary allegiance is to the kingdom of heaven and to Jesus Christ its king. And certainly Paul was probably reminding the uh, Philippians of that. I appreciate you listening with me. I see my time is up. I ask God's blessings on all of you. Goodbye.